understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. All right, so we've got Genesis chapters 3 and 4 and Moses chapters 4 and 5, which once again, um, Genesis being in the Old Testament, Moses being in the Pearl of Great Price, and these chapters correspond in many ways and kind of uh, complement and build upon each other. And that's why they're being kind of presented together. But um, talking about Adam and Eve today <laughs> and really uh, their experience in the Garden of Eden and then the immediate kind of aftermath behind uh, their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And I just wanted to share this uh, quote from President Russell M. Nelson. He said, the creation of Adam and Eve was a paradisiacal creation, one that required a significant change before they could fulfill the commandment to have children. The fall of Adam and Eve constituted a mortal creation and brought about the required changes in their bodies, including the circulation of blood and other modifications as well. They were now able to have children. They and their posterity also became subject to injury, disease, and death. And a loving creator blessed them with healing power by which the life and function of precious physical bodies could be preserved. I, I think it hits a little bit different coming from him being a doctor and him like he talks about circulation. He was a heart doctor. You know, it's kind of just interesting how he his perspective on mortality was that not only did it bring in all these things that could be perceived as bad illness, injury, death, but also healing and repair and redemption. We could not be redeemed if there wasn't a fall. So just kind of that that principle is, I think, overarching all of this is that. There's a spiritual death and a spiritual redemption. There's also physical injury and physical death and a physical healing and redemption as well. But uh, I thought about the same along the same lines, you know, overall in the story, what we're what we're what we're seeing is. And, and there's a lot of quotes in general conference articles and hints that, well, at this point, when Adam and Eve. Are created and uh, are given agency and and all throughout this section, it's funny because. God always asks them questions. I thought that was interesting. Mm. He asks them questions. And we know in the that God is all knowing. He knows what happens, but he still asks them questions and gives them an opportunity to explain themselves. And I don't and I, I kind of think like it's kind of a teaching question asking relationship. And and the first part of that, I think it's when, you know, they they per, they partake of the fruit and then Adam and Eve, they they make um garments i think because they're uh naked um and god comes and says uh they make aprons out of fig leaves yeah uh and then in moses chapter 4 verse 14 and they say they heard the voice of the lord god as they were walking in the garden in the cool in the cool of the day and adam and his wife went to hide themselves from the presence of god uh amongst the trees of the garden and the lord 
And I, the Lord, called unto Adam and said unto him, Where goest thou? Adam, where are you going, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I heard that voice in the garden, and I was afraid. And then 17 um, and 16, beheld that I was naked, and I hid myself. And God then asked them another question. Yep. Who told thee thou was naked? And then, have thou eaten of the fruit of uh, wherefore I commanded that thou should not eat? If so, thou should surely die? And the man said, the woman that gave us me and commanded she, she tricked me into it, so it's kind of her fault type of thing. And and God, it's it's interesting and in how I, I just I just found it interesting that he would ask questions. And so I've been really stuck on that. Like, why would he do that? He could very easily say, Hey, I know exactly what you did, come out here. Yeah. But it wasn't accusatory, it was, hey, where are you going? We used to go, I would assume when God came and they heard God, they would always go and rush and talk to him. But this time he's actually running away and God says, hey, where are you going? <laughs> you know, and then when he finds out, hey, you know, I'm, I was naked and I was afraid. And why are you afraid? You know, why are you hiding yourself? And I don't know. It, it feels to me like things you would do if you were interested in teaching, right. not in catching and punishing, which is what the fall of Adam and Eve, the story traditionally as you hear it in the world and in religions and, and everyone it almost sounds like a god you did something wrong god punished you that's why we're here and earth sucks because of you, you know? <laughs> right and when you think about why god is asking these questions and you and we listen to modern revelation about this was part of the plan that we needed to introduce good and evil we needed to introduce knowledge and in in order to do that you have to have reference points you know and we have learned in previous lessons that since the beginning it was decreed to have a savior so since the beginning we knew that there would be a departure from following god's voice and this would bring about the the fall and because of that fall it would introduce physical and spiritual changes to our existence and with those changes there would be blessings and opportunities there would also be heartache pain and in uncleanliness and not being complete anymore or not being complete ever i don't think we were complete before in innocence i don't think we could have been saved you know we couldn't have known good from evil or happiness in our innocence we couldn't stay in the garden i think the asking of questions also is to teach accountability right i know everything that happened i know what's going on i can see you i know all everything but i'm still going to ask you because i want you to show me that you understand what you've done and that you understand what the implications are, right? It's kind of like when your kid gets into the cookie jar and eats all the cookies and you're like, hey, where did the cookies go? Did you eat the cookies? And their face is covered in chocolate, you know? And they're like, no. And it's like, you're trying to teach a lesson there that I want you to be honest. I want you to be accountable for what you've done. And it's not so that I can rain punishment down on you, but it's just so that you can see that, you know, you need to be honest and you need to be accountable when you do things. And the decisions that you make, you've been given agency to choose, now you're going to be accountable for that agency, right? Especially after the fall, where it's like now every decision you make has direct consequences and you're going to have to strive in order to survive. It's not just, you know, oh, the fruit and the food is just here for us. No, now by the sweat of your brow will you eat, you know? And it's this quick way of teaching this lesson of we're accountable for what we do. In Moses 4, verse 7, which is kind of the same same part of Genesis 3, um, he says, he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And he spake by the mouth of the serpent. The servant. And the woman said unto the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which thou beholdest in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And it's interesting to me that Satan is is presuming that, well, he's, he's basically focusing on the restrictions that God has put on them, saying, you can't eat all the trees, right? And she's saying, we can eat of all the trees, but that one he's told us not to partake of. And I think that that's a great illustration of how Satan views the world and how Satan views the commandments and how he tries to show us this is a restriction on you. Yeah. These commandments are restricting you from doing whatever you want, right? You can't even drink coffee, can you? You can't even do this or that on Sunday, can you? What is that about? And really what it's saying, what we should be looking at that and saying is, no, I can, but I've been asked not to. Right. And it, it leads on into Adam, I want you to, to uh, once you're out of the garden, I want you to build an altar and give sacrifices, right? And the angel comes to him and is like, why are you doing this? And he goes, I don't know. I've been commanded to do this. And it's this obedience first, and then trying to find out the reason why, right? And then the angel tells him, well, you're doing this because uh, the reason you're all bringing your firstlings and the best parts of your crops is to signify the firstborn, the only begotten son of God. Right. They're being taught the gospel of redemption from day one. And I just I just find that really interesting how it's like he points out to her, you know, let me get this straight. So you can't eat all the fruit. Well, yeah, I can. Um, actually, most of these I can. Right. Just this one. I'm not supposed to. I that that that's a really good that's a really good thought, because I never looked at it that way uh, as far as Satan always focuses on the restriction, you know, which I think, it, like you said, it continues to be true in our day. You know, with everything we do, and I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about going to the temple is learning that the Lord says, at least to me, in my understanding, was everything is on the path. There's just the right time and the right place for everything. Learning, like learning to navigate the path, will give you freedom. The commandments give you freedom. Order brings about freedom. And we often think that disorder is the greatest freedom. I can do what I want when I want, as much as I want when I want it. And what ends up happening is disorder brings subjugation. It brings bondage. Mm. And you can tie this to the simplest thing, whether it's food, diet, health, exercise, knowledge, going to school, working. Disorder may appeal as the greatest freedom, but if you decide you want to show up to work whenever you want, that's not going to work. Even in jobs that are flexible, they're flexible because there's an agreement of a product or a service that has to happen at certain times. And if that's not met, regardless of how flexible your work is, you're not going to be a business or a company or not be good. You're not going to be the best you can. Same thing with school. If you're like, hmm, I'm going to, I don't want to do addition. Hmm, I'm jumping straight to calculus. That's what I really want to know. Well, that's going to become a problem and you're going to miss out and actually you may end up worse off, you know, and, and I don't know, that's kind of interesting that you mentioned that. Cause I, I think that's so true that oftentimes it's like, Oh, well, you can't do this. Well, you can do that, but not right now, not in this setting. Right. There's a setting for that. Another part that I thought was really interesting was as as they say, you know, I, we, we were naked so and we were afraid, so we hid. He asked them kind of, you know, what, what did you do here? Well, we ate the fruit. Then he turns to the serpent, the Lord. And he says, because thou hast done this, 
Thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. Notice he did not turn to Adam and even say, you guys are cursed now because you broke my rule. He turns to Satan and says, thou art cursed because thou hast done this. And I think that that's a very important distinction. There are consequences to their action. They're no longer going to be in the presence of God. They're no longer going to just live off of the land as it provides for them. But he's not cursing them. And he's cursing Satan here. And then he goes on, you know, I'll put enmity between thee and the, and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Now, there's a lot to break down in there, but it's interesting because. Um, when when he's talking to them, uh, James E. Talmadge and Jesus the Christ, he wrote in the promise given of God following the fall that through the devil should have the power to bruise the heel of Adam's posterity through the seed of the woman should come the power to bruise the adversary's head. It is significant that this assurance of eventual victory was to be realized through the offspring of woman. The promise was not made specifically to the man nor to the pair. So let me stop there. Because he's saying. I'm going to put enmity between your seed and and the serpent, right? Basically saying they're going to have to to deal with each other for the rest of time. He'll be able to bruise your heel, but you'll be able to crush his head. Now, who will be able to crush his head? Uh, and then he goes on. The only instance of offspring from woman disassociated from mortal fatherhood is the birth of Jesus the Christ. Who was the earthly son of a mortal mother begotten by an immortal father. We assume that the, the person bruising or crushing the, the serpent's head are, is the seed of the woman, right? But what woman? Not of Eve, because we can't crush the head of Satan on our own. It's the seed of Mary, Jesus the Christ that crushes Satan's head. It's he that overcomes the adversary forever. And that's, I think, the, the important part there, because I've always assumed that it was like, oh, cool. So we've got this arrangement where I can get my heel bruised, but I can crush his head. But that's not really what it is, because we cannot defeat Satan without the Savior. What it is, is we will, he has the ability to tempt, to um, distract, to bruise our heel, so to speak, and who is it that has the power to crush his head is the seed of the woman who is Mary. That's a revelation that we get from from this text, J Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge, where he's basically saying, let me clarify this. It was not the seed of Adam and Eve that would crush the serpent's head, but the seed of the woman who is Mary. So there's also this this other part that gets introduced with the story about original sin. Right. And I was looking at um in in the truthofjesuschrist.org website and one of the one of the principles that he explains about original sins it says the result of our first parents transgression and explained president smith was banishment from the presence of god and bringing physical death into the world the majority of christians maintain that every child born into the world is tainted with original sin or or partakes of adam's transgressions in his birth the second article of faith contradicts this foolish and erroneous doctrine all descendants of Adam and Eve inherit certain effects from the fall, but because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, we are held accountable only for our sins. Children who die before the age of accountability are alive in Christ and have no need of repentance or baptism. And I, I think that's one of the blessings of the restored truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is 
the understanding in the correction of original sin or its effects because in these verses that you wrote there could be a lot of assumptions made about oh well you're going to pass on these things your seed is going to be cursed they're going to you know in, in this belief of original sin is passed on which the lord has corrected in the book of mormon and in the articles of faith in dr covenants in everywhere he's <laughs> can talk about this to say that uh you are accountable for your actions you know now you are highly encouraged to act right so you bless your kid's life and and, and, and you know and we we see a lot of that in the book of mormon you know and in the scriptures about parents have a responsibility to teach their kids to teach them up in the correct way even in in the old testament this is this is this the gospel of jesus christ has been with us from the beginning it's only through the eras and errors of man that some of these misconceptions have been introduced and and this is one of them the, the original sin story well yeah and what would the alternative have been right that's kind of the point is it's like okay you're right let's let's pretend that that was original sin and that he did something wrong well what would he have done what would we have done had he not done the wrong thing had they not transgressed and, and consumed the fruit what's the alternative they'd still be there and we would they couldn't have children they you know we would still be waiting for the thing to be kicked off <laughs> I mean, there's another segment <clears throat> that talks about it, it's entitled commandments in the garden and it says the lord gave adam and eve commandments in the garden of eden two of which were to multiply and replenish the earth and to not partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil these two commandments were designed to place Adam and Eve in a position where they had to make a choice. President Smith taught, the Lord said to Adam that if he wished to remain as he was in the garden, that he was not to eat of the fruit. But if he desired to eat of it and partake of death, he was at liberty to do so. Faced with this dilemma, Adam and Eve chose death, both physical and spiritual, which opened the door for themselves and their posterity to gain knowledge and experience and to participate in the Father's plan of happiness leading to eternal life. I like that. I like because it makes sense that it was a conscious choice. It also makes sense in the scriptures that Adam walked with God. And I'm assuming Eve as well. And this was not, this didn't happen on a Monday. You know, creation was done Sunday, God rested, and then the following Monday, this happened. I think time went by, and they were taught and learned and knew what they were doing, you know. And they, they, they recognized that those commandments were kind of uh, mutually exclusive. Like, you could not have children without partaking of the fruit. And if you didn't partake of the fruit, you couldn't have children. And so it was like, well, if we were to make, being forced into making a choice here, the choice should be to progress. Uh, not to remain stagnant. And I think that that speaks to our, our situation as well. The choices that we make should always be choices in order to progress, not to remain stagnant. And learn as much as you can and gain knowledge whenever possible. In Genesis 3, verse 21, basically, you know, he's telling them in the previous verses in 18 and 19, there'll be thorns and thistles, and you, the sweat of thy face shall thou eat thy bread. You know, basically saying things are going to change. Um, your existence is now a very different existence. But then in verse 21, unto Adam also and unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And to me, that's an interesting thing because, you know, they've done what they can to cover their nakedness by making these, you know, aprons of fig leaves or whatever. And the Lord's saying, listen, y'all got to leave this garden. 
and this is what your life's going to be like and it's going to be hard and it's going to be rough and it's going to be work and you know but i'm gonna i'm gonna put i'm gonna give you these clothes right it's almost like there's a consequence but i'm also going to still give you blessings and still kind of help you out on your way i'm not just going to throw you out and be like good luck now you got to pull yourself up by your non-existent bootstraps because you don't even have boots you know it's like no yes there's consequences but i'm not just going to abandon you now you're no longer in my presence but i'm going to give you the tools and i'm going to give you the knowledge to progress still because i love you it's not a condemnation of you it's not he didn't curse them right he cursed satan for what he did and he gave them consequences but he also gave them like opportunity to move forward and that to me is like so often overlooked right that it's like well they got they had to go out into the into this horrible world now and and, sur- and survive and it's like gosh it's the same world we're in it's the same world we're in and god is there for us too and god has provided us with tools and knowledge and information and revelation and this the holy ghost and all of this to help us along our way too uh, we may not be in his presence but he has not forsaken us right so i think that that's just what that verse means to me so one one part in these verses, especially when when Adam, uh, when the Lord speaks to Eve and says, um, "What's the term?" He says, "Where you'll be subject to your husband." Yeah, he shall rule over thee. So I think that's another example of something that can be taken just like original sin and warped into a fallacy. And there's this quote. There's this talk. Well, one is that. I can see how because of the history of humankind and the way men have unrighteously tried to rule and oppress women, that's yeah. just the truth, that we can fall into the misconception that God placed Adam above Eve, you know, and, and that this was the case from the beginning. So I know that that's not true. I know it because I prayed about it and I've read scriptures, but I've also listened to women of the church and and our leaders and our prophets have spoken. And in conference, that is revelation we're receiving from the Lord about the roles of men and women. Now, the roles are different, but equal. And one of the ways that Satan attacks something that is supposed to be equal is to make it look like they're not equal. Either make one look feel less and one feel more and vice versa. And so the enemy of equality or unity, because we're supposed to be one, is any kind of pride and any kind of selfishness and any lack of charity, the pure love of Christ, I think, drives a wedge into any relationship that should be united or community or country or world, right? So there's a talk entitled, It's Not Good for Man to Be and or Woman to Be Alone. It's by, done by Sherry Dew. It's in the, it was in conference and it was in, uh, you can find it at Church of Jesus Christ. There's a really good quote on there by President Harold B. Lee that she uses. It says, pure womanhood plus priesthood means exaltation. But womanhood without priesthood or priesthood without pure womanhood doesn't spell exaltation. And then Sherry Du continues to say, sisters, we as women are not diminished by priesthood power. We are magnified by it. I know this is to be true, for I have experienced it again and again. Then it says, here's the part where it says, um, my dear young friends, Learn the Lord's pattern for men and women now. Ponder the scriptural accounts of Adam and Eve and see what the Lord will teach you that will strengthen your marriage, your family, your church service. Recent, um, then it says, our father's pattern 
helps us avoid deception. Look to the Lord and not to the world for your ideas and ideals about men and women. For my young friends, you are the mothers and fathers and leaders who were reserved for this unprecedented time because our Heavenly Father knows you. And he knows you have what it takes to face the world and to be fearless in building his kingdom. Do it together, for it is not good for man or woman to be alone. Lift each other, and together we will be able to lift and beautify, lift the beautiful burdens of mortality and have glory added upon our heads forever. Um, it's a really good talk, and it really, I think it talks and explains a little bit how we need to look to the Lord for our identity and our purpose. Look to him to tell you where you rank in his eyes, you know? Because like you mentioned, Satan loves to work, um, to focus on uh, restraints or what was the term? Yeah, the restrictions. Restrictions, you know? And with that, I think he likes to focus, oh, you're different than this. That means you're not the same. That means you're not equal. That means you're the worst, you know? Um, and likewise, I mean, this topic goes both ways where men should not elevate themselves above women and women should not elevate themselves. It, true unity is something to strive for and respect among everybody, you know? I don't know if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, we get the example from the proclamation to the family or to the world on, on the family. Um, President Spencer W. Kimball said, I have a question about the word rule. It gives the wrong impression. I would prefer to use the word preside because that's what he does. A righteous husband presides over his wife and family. And then in the, in the proclamation, it says, by divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of the children. In these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. And I look at it and I, you know, you look at the word preside and the, def the modern definition is to, you know, have authority over or direct and control. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily the intent of that word, even in this context, because it's not like, oh, the dad's in, in control of everything. What it means to me is that I have certain responsibilities that I have to carry out. I have to provide for my family. I have to make sure that they're safe and secure. But I have certain roles that are my job. And my wife has certain roles that are her job. And if either one of us is shirking those responsibilities, we're going to suffer somehow. And, you know, ultimately, uh, it may be different a little bit from family to family what those roles exactly are. What the wife or husband feel comfortable doing or what they want to take responsibility for may be slightly different from household to household. But the point is, it's not that I tell my wife what she needs to do and she just better do it or else. No, it's like, all right, I'll handle this. If you can handle this and together we can, we'll, we'll have a shared responsibility and nothing will be left undone, right? And to me, that's how it works. Like I said last time, I think the times when I've tried to say, oh, I'll just shoulder this burden and that burden and the other thing, I, I take too much on myself in some sort of, you know, uh, pretentious idea that I, I it's my responsibility as a father and husband. And then I'm dying, you know, and it's like, I have a perfectly capable, willing, intelligent human being with me who's like, dude, what are you doing? Trust me, I, I will do this and this and then you do that and that and we'll be fine. And you see that there's a there's a difference there. Um, different responsibilities, but equal responsibility overall in the end. In that Sherry Do talk, motherhood is in that talk is 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 um, compared to the priesthood. Yeah. Like man receive the priesthood, which is not a super secret special power. <laughs> All functions of the priesthood are to get you to serve others right. as the Savior would. Now, if you use that to 
lord over others, you're not utilizing the priesthood. No. You're not exercising priesthood power. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord is very clear that amen to your authority, meaning it profits no one anything and you actually condemn yourself. Okay. Um, the oath and the covenant of the priesthood, I think, is one of the most strongly worded condemnations to turn away from this oath. It, it, the Lord says it would be better for you not to have been born. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, and then motherhood is the mechanism by which we are all here. And it's something that I don't think we can ever understand fully as men, you know, but we greatly benefit from it. And I like to think about what is something like that, that I cannot understand fully, but has shaped and benefited me tremendously. And the thing I can think about is the atonement of Jesus Christ and how these two things are so like each other that being a mother might be the closest thing to the atonement of Jesus Christ that we can experience. And the way we can experience it is by serving others, but the way women experience it is probably in a totally different way that, that we don't understand. And I, I was thinking about in Alma chapter seven, where, where Alma, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, he starts talking about Jesus Christ will be born of Mary in Jerusalem in the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious chosen vessel. vessel. And then 11, he talks about the son of God. And he says, and he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sickness of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may lose the bands of death, which bind his people. That he may take upon him their infirmities, that his vows may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. And the way I thought about this was the commandment that the Lord now gives Adam and Eve to, to go forth, you know, <laughs> kick them out of the garden. And the way that he tells Adam to preside, you know, is a way that we have to, we have a responsibility to figure out how to do that correctly. For me, I think the greatest pattern is the savior. He's the greatest leader and the way he did it, according to this scripture, is he took upon himself death. He took upon himself infirmities. He took upon himself positions and put himself through what we are going through. So his bowels may be filled with mercy. So he knows how to succor his people. So if you think about a, a man, a husband trying to lead his family, he should be one that will take upon him the situations of his household will take upon him their concerns that he may lead from mercy, you know, and that he can succor the needs and attend to the needs of his family. I think that's what preside means. I don't think it means what we are traditionally think, oh, I'm a king in a throne, bring me my goblet, <laughs> you, know, you know, do what I say. Jesus Christ is not a do what I say, not what I do leader. He was the opposite. Almost all of his teaching opportunities where he was about doing good. He went about doing good. And then as people asked, hey, what you doing? Then he would unfold on them a lesson. And that was more better received than whatever the Pharisees had been doing for generations. You know, and to the point where so great of an example he was that in his limited two-year ministry, he's changed all of our lives that's the kind of leader to be you know and and it's the same thing as eve as women 
strive for this kind of leaders in the proclamation of the family it says this is the ideal scenario this is the ideal family unit but in situations you may only have one parent and you have to try to foster both roles or you may have uneven uh, capabilities and you have to help each other and I know we go through difficult situations but I have a hard time saying things are not fair because I've dedicated my life to follow Jesus Christ his life was not fair and so if we are to say we're going to be his disciples and we're going to say that there's unequity and unevenness out there and it's not fair then we need to be careful because we have to not make a mock of the savior because he chose to walk a path that was not fair and in that he became the greatest of all and so if he asks he's asking us to do the same we may it, through this mortality part of the thorns and thistles that will be not being in the garden of eden that we may prick ourselves with may be unfair situations things that are outside of our control but in this plan the lord deemed that it will be fair in time that the savior will make up for all of these things and we will have joy and another great thing i think in the book of mormon that explains about the fallout of adam and eve is in second nephi chapter two and lehi says men are that they might have joy you know this existence was not designed just to be a trial a, a, a burden that that is everlasting you know, of pain and suffering it's also there is much joy and adam and eve experienced that joy unfortunately in the next chapter one of their kids is going to kill the other it's probably a very <laughs> difficult thing but but that's you know no 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 family unit is perfect we are all incomplete we're all on the journey of becoming complete and coming back to to our heavenly father yeah i i think it's one of those things that i also always assumed um was that cain and abel were like the first two born and it doesn't it doesn't say that it says that they um i think it's in uh in moses in chapter two, uh, chapter five, verse two, and Adam knew his wife, and she bare unto him sons and daughters, and they began to multiply and replenish the earth. So they had sons and daughters, tending flocks, all of that stuff, and then they had, after a while, they had Cain and Abel. And um, th this is an interesting story because it's kind of like the first time that it's not, well, it's not the first time that bad decisions were made. <laughs> they knew good and evil. They knew. Uh, we probably made mistakes and repented and all of that. Um, but Cain kind of sided more with uh, liking the approach of Satan, um, was more susceptible to that. And um, in chap Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, after he kills Abel, the Lord comes to him once again with the questions, right? Lord knows what happened. He, he saw it. He knows. He knows everything. But he comes and asks him, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And um, it's interesting because President Oaks, in his book, Brother's Keeper, wrote, Cain killed Abel. The scriptures say that he did so for the sake of getting gain, the flocks of his brother. Seeing this, the Lord asked Cain, where is Abel thy brother? Cain first attempted to cover his sin with a lie. I know not. Then added a rationalization. Am I my brother's keeper? Are we our brother's keepers? In other words, are we responsible to look after the well-being of our neighbors as we seek to earn our daily bread? The Savior's golden rule says we are. Satan says we are not. And I think about how many times, you know, you see people making bad decisions or you see people headed down a path where they're not going to find happiness. And we often say, well, that's their business. That's their decisions. They, they're entitled to do whatever they want. And yes, this should be done cautiously. 
because it shouldn't be done with judgment of them or, you know, saying, I know better than you, I'm smarter than you, or you need to just do what I do, but rather with compassion and with love. And if you can see someone heading down the wrong path to say, hey, don't get caught up in that stuff. Come with me. Um, or I, I need help, too. I need I need you to come with me. I need your, you to be with me. Because we are our brother's keepers. And that question is so, so interesting. You know, he, he first is like, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, why are you asking me where he is? Yeah. And the Lord's like, why am I asking you? Because you, once again, need to be accountable for the decisions you've made. I like the account in Moses 5 about this because it adds a couple of little things. One of them in verse 18. Well, in 17, we hear that. It's talking about Eve, and she conceived again and bare a son Abel. And Abel hearkened unto the voice of the Lord, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So for a long time, I used to think, oh, you know, that one ditch kept sheep and the other one kept fruits or planted food, right? One was a farmer and the other one was a herdsman, I guess. Um, I used to think that was important, but it, it really isn't. What was important here is that Abel hearkened unto the voice of the Lord, and in verse 18 says, Cain loved Satan more than God. And Satan commanded him, saying, Make an offering unto me, unto the Lord. I mean, make an offering unto the Lord. Now, the Lord wanted these offerings, but he didn't want an offering because Satan told you to make an offering. He wanted probably an offering because you were trying to express gratitude. You're trying to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And then in verse 20, he says, Abel brought forth the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof, meaning makes it sound like he brought the best. Yeah. He decided to give the Lord the best. And then it says, and the Lord was had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Now Satan knew this, and it pleased him. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So we learn a couple things. One is, if we do the right action for the wrong reasons, it doesn't profit us, it doesn't please the Lord. So the outward appearance of their offerings wasn't the important thing. It was in our heart what it meant and why we were doing it, you know, that was pleasing. Then we learn another thing about what pleases Satan. What pleased Satan wasn't that, that Cain offended the Lord. What pleased him was that Cain became wroth and his countenance fell, that Cain distanced himself from the Lord even more. And I think that's interesting because out of this, we get into, you know, this, this ability to get gain by murder and secret combinations and, 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 and uh, the, you know, these, 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 in, in these oaths that uh, in verse 29, and, and Satan said unto Cain, swear unto me by thy throat that thou tell it that thou shalt die and swear to thy brethren and swear on this and do this and kind of bind yourself to me into my methods of doing things. And, and that's very contrary. And, and in verse 31, Cain now becomes like this master of secrets and murder to get gain. And all of this, this is contrary to the gospel of Christ. He kind of starts creating his own economy. It's what I view of value. We're going to value those who do what we say, our own government, our own uh, oaths, our own society. And then we'll watch out for each other just like the Ganyantum robbers. This is the beginning. This is where it all started. The whole premise of you can just, you don't have to care for others, care for yourself and get other people that support you in being selfish and 
trying to get gain, get more. And that that's the thing is, I have a feeling that just from reading these that my assumption is that Abel was very industrious mm. and Cain was jealous of his success. The story for me, the important part is, one is be sure that we don't give offerings to the Lord for the wrong reasons. And the Lord also gives us another lesson into what, what the fat and the firstlings are, what, what matters to him in the parable of the widow's might. He was he's he's interested like in the in the gospel of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. What is the real sacrifice? What is your real intention? And if that pure intention you have is the widow's mites worth, if it's pure, it's good enough for him. Now, if you're like the Pharisees that were dumping money bags of chain into the well, into the offering, you know, that didn't profit and please the Lord. And so for me. This was, I always take this lesson of Cain and Abel as a story about how to genuinely please the Lord and how to be genuine myself. Not so much what are these mysteries and where are these books written and what the Gaddy Anton Robert secret handshake <laughs> is, whatever. I'm sure all that exists and there is all that stuff. But for me, it's like Satan is pleased when our countenance falls. And I'm sure the Lord would have worked with Cain and helped him and teach him. But what ended up happening is Cain, in his anger, decided to double down and swear unto and do more. You know, it's like he, he spiraled downward. And the more you head down that path, it, it's very similar to Laman and Lemuel. That's a story almost similar to this that's in that we have a lot more detail about. But all of the chances, Lehi, Nephi, angels, the voice of the Lord, tried to compel them and turn them from their ways, but ultimately their agency led them to be cut off entirely from the presence of the Lord. And and it's we often see that this story can, sorry, I'm rambling, but Cain and Abel can also feel like, oh, there's favoritism here. One was favored and the other wasn't, and he was cursed from the beginning. I don't think so. He wasn't cursed from the beginning. He gets a curse because of what he did. That seems very harsh, and, and Cain says, you know, my, my punishment is greater than I can bear. But also there's an order of how you got there, how Cain got there. And it's very similar, also similar to the story of King David and and, uh, and how he falls from grace. He had every opportunity not to. Even before he he killed Abel, because interestingly enough, if we look at, um, at Moses chapter 5 in verse 24, well, 22, the Lord came unto Cain, what? Why art thou wroth? Why has thy countenance fallen? He's, you know, asking him, I did not accept your offering. What, what, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? And then he goes on, if thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and Satan desireth to have thee. And except thou shalt hearken unto my commandments, I will deliver thee up. And it shall be unto thee according to his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And then he says, from this time forth, thou shalt be the father of his lies. Thou shalt be called perdition. But that was before the what was also before the world. What he's telling him here, why is he treating Cain this way after bringing this this unworthy offering, right? Why is he giving him such a harsh punishment? It's not because he just wants to be favoritism towards Abel, Abel right? It's because he knew Cain knew the meaning of the offering. He knew what was expected, 
and he willingly and knowingly denied God and rebelled. And Satan was pleased with it because it represented a denial of the spirit. Which is why he calls him, you know, a son of perdition. You knew you had a knowledge of what was expected of you. You had a knowledge of what this meant and you purposefully, willingly and knowingly went against that. That's why the punishment was so strong. And notice this was happening before he even killed Abel. He did not become a son of perdition because he killed Abel. He became a son of perdition because he knowingly and willingly disobeyed God. He had a greater light and knowledge that he then went against. And then, of course, he compounded that by going and taking out revenge on his brother Abel, as if that was somehow going to fix it, saying, oh, I'm going to inherit his flocks now. No, you are not going to inherit his flocks now, right? When he came and asked him, what did you do? What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground in verse 35. Once again, asking him, what did you do? Uh, and then in verse 39 of, of Moses 5, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the Lord, and from the face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that he findeth me will slay me because of mine iniquities. For these things are not hid from the Lord. He's worried that people are going to try and get back at him for what he's done. And I, the Lord, said unto him, Whosoever slayeth thee, vengeance shall be taken upon him, taken on him sevenfold. And the, I, the Lord, set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. It's interesting because the idiom in English, the mark of Cain, is this like curse, right? But we learn from here that this mark of Cain was actually to protect Cain, to kind of like label him as someone who's already received judgment of the Lord. Um, he's already been punished. And the other people who may find him that want to get revenge on him for killing Abel are not per permitted to execute their own judgment on him. He has already been marked as judged, right, by the Lord. And so it kind of goes back to, like, who, who has the right to make judgment on people who have committed sin? Who has the right to go and execute some sort of retribution or whatever? That is the Lord's job. The Lord says it throughout the scriptures. Vengeance is mine. You let me handle that. You just do what you're supposed to do. Don't worry about other people. This goes back all the way to Cain and Abel. Don't worry about going and taking vengeance out on Cain. I've handled this. I've given him his punishment. And I've even marked him so that if anyone tries, I'm going to, you know, it'll be sevenfold worse for them. Because that's not your job to be a judge. That to me was really interesting because, you know, first of all, I always assumed that the whole, you know, curse and, and son of perdition thing came because he killed Abel. But that happened beforehand. And then after killing Abel, it was like, all right, you know what? You've gone too far. You've gone so far off that I'm going to just mark you with judgment now. And he continues to live. He has a family. He has children who are also kind of stirring the, the will of Satan among the people. And, and Lamech, who we learn about later, who's kind of a bad dude, <laughs> you know. But it was interesting to me to learn as I was reading that. What was it that marked him as a son of perdition was he, he just went against everything he knew to be true. He had a, a greater light and knowledge that he denied. And then he went and doubled down and committed murder. And the Lord was like, all right, that's enough. It's funny that he, Cain is seeking immediate gratification. Yeah. And sacrificing eternal progression for it. And even when the Lord gives him his punishment for, for killing Abel, He's concerned about his immediate life. Yeah. Like, hey, I've gained this wealth or whatever. I have a method of gaining wealth. It's not fair that they cut my life short, you know? I'm worried about that as opposed to being having godly sorrow for what he did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 
which is interesting about the human personality, spirit, whatever that, that we can get to a point where our compass doesn't even point north at all. Well, he showed absolutely no remorse. And I think that that's also a key to this is that it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I went so far off. I, I, I'm sorry. No, it was like, well, I don't want someone to come and try and kill me because they want to get back at me. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you, you are so far gone that you don't even care about what you've done. You're more concerned about how hard this is going to be on you from now on than trying to redeem anything about what you've done. I mean, if you think about it, like for us, it's pretty hard to reach that level of being gone, right? Uh, especially because the atonement is infinite. But it comes down to that willingness, like how much do you know and how much are you in that moment of decision? Are you willingly and knowingly denying what you know to be true? And yeah, there will be there are consequences for that type of behavior. If you know something is wrong and you're reminded of it, the spirit's telling you, hey, this is wrong. Don't do it. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm not saying that automatically qualifies you to be a son of perdition. We know that that's pretty difficult to <laughs> achieve, so to speak. But the the consequences are greater if you know what you're actually doing, if you understand the implications and do it anyway. The good thing is, not long after that, Adam and Eve have Seth, who the scriptures say is very much like Adam in the sense that he gives his best, very much like Abel, like he gives his best. So even in losing Abel, like the Lord blesses them later with a, another child that kind of reminds them of Abel. You know, and I, I wonder how many times Seth was told, you know what? Your brother Abel would have loved you. Your brother, you're just like him. And how many times that may have inspired him to be better as well. Become an engaged learner. Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study, which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost. It will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me. Mm -hmm.